The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. I first met Rose at a meeting in Iowa. It was at the Drake University Agriculture Law School. Rose got up pounded her fist on the podium and said, we have got to be a lot more revolutionary. Rose is a U.S. historian. Her specialty is uh, gardens and gardens specifically during war periods. And so, Rose, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're here with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melinda. I'm so excited to be on this program, and um, I continue to believe that we have to be a lot more revolutionary and radical and and one of the things that has me very excited about what's going on today is the garden-garden revolution that's occurring in America. Exactly. It is a revolution, and, and I love the term. I always say it's a revolution and a renaissance of bringing back what we used to have and we sort of got away from. How did that happen? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of ways we, we got away from it. And, you know, we've been moving away from it for a lot longer than most people realize. I mean, even at, um, you know, one of the big concerns at the outset of World War I, uh, a concern of the federal government was um, the American public, the, the disconnect from their food source and agriculture. And that was one of the, uh, the rationales behind the Liberty Later Victory Garden programs of World War I and World War II, was to reconnect Americans to, to their, their food system. Mm. So it, it's, been, it's been a concern for over, you know, over 100 years now mm-hmm. um, because our population has continued to migrate from rural to urban. And so we're now, most Americans are several generations removed from the farm. So your specialty, really, you are known nationally, and I should have told our listeners that you're based actually at the University of California and you live in Ventura, you teach at UC Santa Barbara, But you've been very much involved in having a resurgence of gardens, much like much like what was promoted during World War One and Two. And I know you just got back from Washington D.C. You had visited the White House garden. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your experience there. Well, the the White House garden is is it's truly amazing, and there hasn't been a vegetable garden at the White House since World War Two. Uh, when um, uh, a young woman um, whose father was affiliated with the White House, um, you know, planted a, a tiny garden on behalf of Eleanor Roosevelt. And so it's very exciting, and it's, it's a wonderful garden. What I loved about it, though, is that it wasn't, um, it wasn't unachievable for a home gardener. And I love the fact that the food has been used in, to feed the first family in their family dinners. Uh, at some official functions, and the surplus um, has been donated to Washington, D.C. area food banks. And it was wonderful. Uh, Some of the plant material, uh, you know, a lot of heirloom varieties that are coming from Monticello. Um, This is operated by the National Park Service. I was actually able to eat from the garden three sun-gold tomatoes that were just warm from the sun, 
um, it, and popped with flavor. It was simply a remarkable experience. Uh, one of the things, though, that uh, was equally moving for me was uh, visiting two times while I was back there the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture's People's Garden, which is located at the Witten Building uh, on the National Mall. Right. For me, is uh, is a profound statement about where we are with uh, gardening and agriculture in the U.S. right now, where, where we're moving to. And it was very exciting. And I know that you also met with Deputy Agriculture Secretary Kathleen Merrigan. And I think what a wonderful person to have had uh, that appointment because she has a, a true mission to move in the direction that you see as being important in bringing back more uh, organic agriculture and more local agriculture, more achievable agriculture for citizens. Absolutely, and it, it was it was remarkable. Um, in the last several months, I've had an opportunity um, with small groups of people to meet with Secretary Vilsack, to meet with Deputy Secretary um, Mill- uh, Merrigan, to uh, to hear uh, the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius speak. And what is truly amazing to me is that all of these people at the national level are explicitly linking food and agriculture and human health and nutrition and uh, childhood education and the idea of, uh, of nutrition and prevention as part of health care reform. And it's, it, it's very exciting because uh, even the, the recent um, restructuring within the USDA that resulted in the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which is happening officially, finally, this week, NIFA, this is the first time in a federal agency that I can recall that we have explicitly linked the terms food and agriculture. They've been too disconnected. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. So um, I'm very excited about um, the people that are providing uh, leadership. Um, I thought that uh, Deputy Secretary Merrigan shared a remarkable vision. Well, you know, I was reading your uh, one of your recent posts on the Huffington Post about gardening and the Victory Gardens, and you went through both the World War I, the World War II garden, but also how um, this shift that we've had, this tenuous connection with the land, a poor understanding of our food system. And, you know, when you say, you know, for the first time we've connected food and agriculture, well, let me give you a little... Um, let me let, let me let you in on a little secret. When I was studying to be a dietitian, we never studied agriculture. Isn't that crazy? And so here we are today, you know, finally connecting these dots, which make so much sense. Well, it, it does, and I think it's really necessary. If we're going to achieve um, any kind of meaningful health care reform in this nation, that's going to have to take into account and to consideration reforming and reconsidering how our food system works in this nation. And, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, always concerns me about the food system is uh, consolidation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the hopeful signs that I see are the real growing strength in, in the local food movement and that the fact that the U.S. Department of Agriculture you know, has this new Know Your Farmer, you know, Know Your Food, Know Your Farmer initiative. And if you go to the website of, of that initiative, 
there's so much there about local food systems. And the website has a very different look and feel than the rest of the USDA website. And people can just Google, know your food, know your farmer. Is that it? Absolutely. They, they can Google it. And um, you can even get there through a sort of non-governmental URL. And again, it looks very, very uh, different. And um, this whole interest in local food systems and gardening uh, nationally, is, it's pervasive. And I think it's one of the most promising things that uh, it really giving me a lot of enthusiasm right now. Well, I, I know. I feel like this, this whole movement has really given all of our professions great wings. One of the things that you mentioned in the Huffington Post article, which I thought was brilliant, was, you know, we've got all of these really highly trained master volunteer gardeners out there that were trained under USDA's extension service. And what a great idea you had to put their expertise into action, uh, yes, at home gardens, absolutely, and community gardens, but how about school gardens? Let's feed these kids out of a garden rather than out of a machine. I agree, and I think that uh, one of the great models um, you know, for school gardens would be uh, going back to World War I, and we had uh, one of the first, if not the first, um, federal curricula from the Bureau of Education was a, a, a gardening program for kids, and it, it was called the United States School Garden Army. And oh. it basically um, taught kids at schools uh, how to garden so that there were gardens at schools, but then kids were encouraged to also go and do gardens at home. And it was part of the overall Liberty and, and later Victory Garden program of World War One. And to me, that is remarkable to think that one of the first federal softly mandated curricular efforts focused on gardening. And I look at that curriculum, and um, in many ways it, it could be used today. And, you know, my argument to Arnie Duncan, um, you know, who's our Secretary of Education, would be, you know, when we don't teach kids about the food system, we leave all children behind. Oh, that's that's a very important statement, Rose. If you're just joining us, we are having an exciting conversation with Rose Hayden-Smith. Rose is, is headquartered really in Ventura, California, but she is a nationally recognized historian and expert in the whole Victory Garden movement uh, and as well as uh, gosh, everything from master gardening to the current movement to get more food produced locally. Uh, Rose, as I said, has a. Uh, did you finish your PhD in history? I, I am. I am the final throes of that right now, and am actually hoping to file in in the next number of weeks. I'm, well, I'm footnoting. Well, you're yeah, you're going to have a big garden party. I know when it's all said and done. I'm going to have a big garden party. Exactly, and you're also a food and society policy fellow, which is how we met. And um, what a pleasure it was to first meet you in Iowa at the garden conference there. And I want to, I recalled our, our meeting, and I remember there were uh, you and two other people stuck out in my head. The other one was Joel Kimmons, who is at the CDC looking at health promotion and very much a proponent of garden-based education. And then there was also Catherine Sneed. And Catherine Sneed, of course, had a garden program at the San Francisco uh, City Jail. Absolutely. And I remember that what she proved with her program 
was that the gardening reduced recidivism rates by something like 75%. Oh, and, and there have been uh, several studies in other places um, that, that have proven that. And um, one of the, the people I admire most in the school garden movement nationally is Lisa Whittlesley. And she is with the Junior Master Gardener Program at Texas A&M. And the Junior Master Gardener Program is a great school garden curriculum and program through 4-H, but it's, it's used very widely uh, nationally and internationally for school garden programs. And she has done work with gardening at, um, at women's prisons in, in Texas with very positive outcomes. And, um, you know, California has always been such a strong leader in the school garden program, and uh, we actually have some landmark legislation here called Assembly Bill 1535, and that was passed a couple of years ago, and it, it funded um, non-competitive grant programs funding school gardens um, in the state of California, and uh, depending on the size of the school, it was either $2,500 or $5,000, and unfortunately, um, the Assembly Bill is still in existence but because of the state budget difficulty, it's unfunded right now. And isn't that crazy? Because if you look at the big picture and we look at the issues that are really costing our government so much money, like health care, um, it, it's all about preventive medicine. And I think our food system is at the heart of it. And if you go even one step farther back from food, it would be the garden from which the food comes from. So we see this. Um, we just have to find a way to... I guess let our legislators know how important this is. Is that what you would say? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's so many opportunities right now because uh, people everywhere are connecting the dots that, um, you know, if, if you want um, community, good community health, you need a good food system. And a lot of that, you know, could come from community gardens. And the idea that in many of the communities right now that are, are you know, food deserts or or suffering from uh, food insecurity issues, that, that gardening, especially the large-scale gardening projects that are sort of moving into urban agriculture, that those also can become places to get some federal stimulus funding to produce green jobs. And, you know, you, you look at the national employment or unemployment rate for, for young adults and youth, teens, it, it's above 50%. And the idea that, you know, you could be creating jobs in the community that would be providing vocational skills and improving the community and feeding the community and improving community health, this is upstream thinking that we need to engage in and we need to convince our legislators to believe in. And, you know, many of them do. Um, there is a representative from Ohio that I want to give a huge shout-out to named Marcy Captor. And if you go to her her website, she she's promoting Victory Gardens on her website with a World War One poster. Wow! Um, and there's a whole section on on her website. And so I think there is a growing awareness and a growing sense. But we need to link all of these things together. And and I do have a sense of hope um, around that right now because I, I hear people like Kathleen Sebelius specifically talking about agriculture and gardens and nutrition education for kids. And I hear Kathleen Merrigan saying the same thing and, and um, Secretary Vilsack and First Lady Michelle Obama. Right. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the things that you said in your Huffington Post article was that 
Gardens, the victory gardens of the past, were expressions of solidarity and patriotism and shared sacrifice. And I think about, you know, the big, the, the dollars that have gone into homeland security. And I think what could be better for homeland security and national security than a garden? Well, there, there isn't anything better. And in fact, um, you know, the, the reason, the primary reason um, that the Victory Garden program began in World War One was concern about national security, and the food system was viewed as an issue of national security. And and when he was talking um, about um, America's involvement in war with Germany, Woodrow Wilson actually said, "Food will win the war." And one of the primary reasons to have this program was that that domestic food production on the home front by citizens was viewed as being essential to national security. And, in fact, um, you know, people were told that gardening, that they were soldiers of the soil and that, that no land should be slacker land, no soil that was available on the home front should be left unturned. And, and we saw um, sort of an, an easing of, of property laws um, in, in World War I, also during the 1890s, with the vacant lot cultivation movement, where, you know, the whole idea that, that land that's not being used maybe could be used for gardens. And one of the things that's very exciting to me about the USDA People's Garden and the White House Garden, the San Francisco City Hall Garden, um, the gardens I see springing up are, to me, this is a very right use of civic space for food production, no more sacred use of civic space than for food production. And to me, it's, it's taking us back to that really, really healthy idea that we had that we lost about the commons. Right. You know, um, I should let everybody know that if you were to be so lucky as to get an email from Rose Hayden Smith, you would see that her signature text says, the supreme purpose of history is a better world. And that is a quote from Herbert Hoover. And, you know, frankly, Rose, the older I get, the more I realize how important history is to our future. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So much of this has already been done. We just have to depend on all those hoarders who have kept all those old documents in rusty file cabinets, right? Right. People like me. People like me. It's so interesting because um, this afternoon I'm going to be spending a couple of hours with uh, 14 graduate students in history, um, convincing them that, that their future lies outside of academia proper and in the real world as public historians helping people to, to, you know, facilitate change by using the past as a good example or a bad example. Right. So we don't repeat bad things. We don't repeat bad things, but we can take advantage of good things. Exactly. So one of the questions I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to talk about, uh, well, I have many, of course, on my list, but one is, what do you see as the biggest threat to American agriculture? I'm really concerned about American agriculture. And um, there, there are five things that I think um, are real threats to American agriculture. And, and one of the things that I would want to share with people that is my most fundamental belief is that, you know, and, and, and the, the truth that guides me is that, you know, we were 
a nation of farmers at origin. And I truly believe we are still a nation of farmers at heart. Mm. And every American is a farmer at heart. And we, we, you know, we're farmers, and we have a very special relationship with the land. The biggest threats I see to American ag are consolidation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a hardening of the food system. We need lots of alternatives out there. Uh, the second one that I see that greatly concerns me is loss of seed and loss of biodiversity. And what, you know, frightens me is that if, you know, we used to have hundreds of varieties of wheat, and now, you know, a lot of the world cultivates the same variety. What, what happens if you develop a, a rust uh, that's going to, you know, impact um, food, you know, a certain kind of wheat or a certain kind of grain? That really concerns me. Yeah. Loss of diversity, loss of seed. And, and historically speaking, I typically use the example of the potato famine in Ireland uh, and also the corn blight that occurred in our own country with regard to loss. I share your concern, Rose. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, 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 big, a big thing. And, um, you know, I applaud the work of organizations like Seed Savers and, and, and the work of thousands of home gardeners everywhere that are preserving seeds and sharing seeds. And, um, you know, it was really neat to go to the White House and see all the heirloom varieties. And uh, we, we need to have more of this available. And, um, and a, a great concern to me because seed is so fundamental. Another concern that I have is loss of soil. And um, I, you know, I, of course, had read um, a lot of historical work uh, about Hugh Bennett and, and, you know, the Dust Bowl and things like that and, and have done a lot of research about New Deal restructuring. But um, the, the person who's really brought home the soil issue to me is a resident of Iowa, Angie Tagto, who is, uh, like you, uh, a registered dietitian who knows an awful lot about soil. I have learned more uh, from her about this issue and sort of what's going on currently, really frightening for me. Ab- because uh, once soil's gone, it's gone. And, and I know where I live in Ventura County, we have some of the most productive topsoil in the universe on this Oxnard Plain. And um, the loss of soil for us is not as in Iowa through erosion. It's through development. Oh, very so interesting. me, loss of soil is not only erosion, um, but I, I recently drove up I-5, you know, Interstate 5, through the Central Valley of California. And we've got water issues out here. And, you know, water is, is going to be another huge threat to agriculture in the United States, especially, you know, the western United States. It, it, looks, like a, it looks like a dust bowl right now. It looks like something John Steinbeck would be writing about and, um, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of acres fallowed in mm. California. Mm. And, um, and, you know, maybe some of that is a, a natural adjustment to us growing crops that are inappropriate for a desert, but there are also issues with aging water systems and things that were maybe built in the New Deal that are timing out. I would say the other um, two concerns I have about agriculture, uh, American agriculture, are the loss of the middle, the middle size operators. You know that we've got lots of, we've got big operators, Lots of small operators were losing the middle. That mm-hmm. scares me. And, and the lack of a formal, intentional attempt in this nation, uh, a national imperative to 
to educate every citizen about American agriculture, the food system, environment, and healthy lifestyle. If people don't understand it, they won't value it, they won't preserve it, they won't know how to create policies that protect it and make it thrive. Absolutely. And that takes us right back to this notion of having this education take place in a garden at a very young age where children develop a relationship with the soil and see the miracle of life through a seed. And uh, it seems to me that 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 is the place to start, to nourish that love that does seem to be innate in in all of our hearts, as you say. Um, You know, one of the things, of course, you're in California, you've got all this great weather, although true, you've got water problems. But anytime people, you know, from other parts of the country um, look at this school gardening issue, for example, they'll say, well, you know, it's easy for folks in California to do it, but we live here where we have really long, hard winters. What do you say to that? You know, what I tell people is, listen, look at the work being done at Michigan State University where they are extending the growing system. Look at what Will Allen is able to do in Wisconsin. Look at what Norm Coleman is able to do in Maine. In Maine. <laughs> there are ways to extend the growing season. And one of the things that, you know, would be such a valuable role for land-grant universities to do would be to sort of um, be doing more to get this kind of information out there to schools. And the idea, too, that we need to be evolving our idea of um, just school gardens because the reality is is that no Gardens are not sustainable. School gardens are not sustainable unless they're placed within the larger context of home, school, community, and I would even say workplace gardens. They have to be surrounded by a gardening ethos. We have to be flexible enough on the school end. And, you know, I ran um, on a day-to-day basis a school garden program as a volunteer for six years at Loma Vista Elementary School in Ventura. Um, And... um, what what we saw is that you have to be flexible. So schools have to be flexible in the summer and maybe share the garden with the community so that they continue to be maintained. We need to look at different models, of, uh, but there needs to be a greater ethos around gardening. And the gardening really connects with agriculture because people have on a micro scale the same experiences in their garden that a farmer might have. Um, obviously with not the same dire economic consequences, but the failure of a crop or learning and and that sort of experience. And the more I grow things in the garden, the more I appreciate farmers and the more I want to know. Rose, with about 30 seconds, unfortunately, just left. Do you want to leave our listeners with any last words of revolution? Well, the Garden Garden Revolution is happening in America. And uh, what I'm hoping... Uh, will happen in this next year is if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, get over to the USDA, see the People's Garden there, and um, a group of us believe we have the USDA convinced uh, to launch formally a national school, home, and community garden initiative in 2010. And what we hope is that every American that can will garden and that they'll have an improved understanding of agriculture. And I would also say, too, a garden for everyone and everyone in a garden. 
that those are wonderful, wonderful words to leave us with. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. I want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Rose Hayden Smith. Rose is based in California. She's a Food and Society Policy Fellow. She's also a U.S. historian with a specialty in gardens. Uh, you can follow Rose. She's a wonderful writer on her Victory Grower blog. And if you simply go to the go to Google and if, and type in Rose Hayden Smith plus Victory Grower, you'll get right there. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Rose. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food health, and agriculture. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, it happens to be my daughter, Hannah Hemmelgarn. And I asked her to be on with me and to help share her perspective on the direction that food and agriculture may be headed. Hannah just recently received a degree from Truman State University in Anthropology and Sociology. Her senior research project was on women in sustainable food systems and she also recently received a certificate in permaculture design. And I think that um, some of the conversations that we've had at home, um, I, I'd like to share them with our listeners. So, Hannah, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Hannah, I'd like for you to start by telling us what the heck is permaculture <laughs> and how does it differ from my backyard garden? Right. Well, it depends what your backyard garden looks like. Um, and certainly permaculture can be a part of anyone's backyard garden or even home. Um, permaculture, in a simple way, is functionalism via ecology. That's the easy way of saying it. And David Holmgren, the, one of the people who coined the term permaculture, defines it as a design science that seeks to create agriculturally productive systems with the diversity and sustainability of natural systems in order to provide food, water, shelter, and all other needs in a sustainable or even regenerative way. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful, um, which is why I prefer to think about it um, in terms of working with our environment, thinking about our, ourselves as being all in this together with everything that exists around us, thinking about pests as a critical niche, thinking about the way everything works together um, and how we can fit ourselves into our environmental system in a way that is functional and productive. So how would a permaculture garden vary from a backyard garden? How would I build, let's see, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is how would I build permaculture principles into my backyard garden? Mm -hmm. um, well, one thing you can think about is patterns in your yard. Um, if you look at your land and or your, you know, no matter what space it is, and think about how the environment interacts with yourself and your land, our backyard, for instance, has a slight slope going west. So you'd want to have your rows, if you're going to plant rows, um, perpendicular to that, to that slope so that the water, as it runs downhill, collects in each bed. There are other ways of collecting water, using sunlight in a productive way. You, you'd want to have your garden on the south side of your house, for instance, if that's available to you. Um, putting coniferous trees on the north side of your house to protect from northern winds. Um, different methods like that. And it's not just about gardening, although that is a big part of it. It's definitely about food. Uh, that's a big part of permaculture. But it's also just about looking at how we live in conjunction with the systems around us. 
So what did you learn specifically in your permaculture course? This was was this a one week course that it you was took? three weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> three weeks, wow. And tell me what you learned in each section of the of the course. Well, every day we talked about something different. For example, the first day we talk about we talked about ethics in natural systems, um, ethics of permaculture, the principles of permaculture, the process of design, going through goals articulation. With say you're working with um, a client and you want to design something on their land, how you would talk to that person about how they're functioning, what kind of time management they have, analyzing and assessing their land, climate, you know, observing and interacting with the site. Um, doing characteristics analysis, zone analysis, sector analysis, looking at different patterns on the land, um, water system, aquaculture, working with edge systems, which might take a little description if you're yeah. not familiar. Yeah, please. What, what yeah? is that? Okay. I mean, there are just so many aspects of permaculture. And I guess I should say, really, the, the word permaculture came from permanent agriculture, Oh. the combination of those two words. But really, it's so much more than that. So edge in design involves increasing edge, because the edge of two different kinds of ecology systems, there's going to be a lot of life, a lot of interaction between things. It's really, increasing edge can do a lot for your garden. Um, So say instead of having rows, where you have minimal edge, having sort of curvy, curvy lines, and even for a pond, you know, if you've got a pond that's just a circle, you could only fit, say, 20 bushes around that, the edge of that pond. But if you have a pond with what we call crenulated edges, sort of wavy edges, you could fit twice as many bushes around that pond if you're planting something on the edge. That's very interesting. So I'm sure you looked at other cultures and how they planted and their mm-hmm. patterns. Yeah. So in United States agriculture, we tend to see things in rows, right? Mm-hmm. Linear yes. systems. And what do you notice from other cultures' patterns in agriculture? Um, well, for instance, on the edge topic, there's something called a chinampa. And um, I can't remember what culture this comes from, but it's an indigenous technique. And basically, um, the system looks like a, a sort of pond, but in the shape of like an E with many arms on it. So you've got one section that's just where the, the pond water is sitting, and then the pond flows out in rows from that main system. Um, and you've got plants on either side of each row of water. So you're covering aquaculture there, and you've got the water distribution happening already. You could have fish going, and what this culture does is they, they can harvest in boats. So they can go down this row that has trellises over it. There's you know fruit or whatever you're growing, growing on the trellises over the water. And you're just lots of interaction of things. Yeah, that's really amazing, and it seems like the no permaculture site is the same. It really varies yeah, with the land absolutely. and yeah. the climate. Mm-hmm. So right now, you know what my garden looks like. It's a square. <laughs> it's got rows. Uh-huh. Would you recommend more of a, a, a circle type of design? or ha- If you were to transform the typical American garden with straight rows, what would you do? Well, like you say, it really depends on the garden. Um, And it also depends on what the gardener is willing to put into that garden. A pattern that's really familiar in a lot of permaculture design is the keyhole. Um, So you could have a sort of U-shape, food growing in a U-shape, and then a path into that U-shape. So you can harvest all the way around you. You can stand in one spot, and on all sides, within arm reach, you can harvest. And the same goes for the outside of that U. And it actually uses 
the most minimal path space for the amount you can grow. That's very interesting. Yeah. Now, I should have told our listeners, um, in addition to your, your recently getting your permaculture cer- certificate and your senior research on women in food systems, you also worked to improve the food system itself at Truman State University. Well, I attempted that. <laughs> you attempted it. It's not easy work. And, it's and slow going. It is very slow going. And we have just returned from the Community Food Security Coalition's <coughs> conference in Des Moines, Iowa, and we were on a panel together on uh, sharing our stories of women working in food and agricultural systems. And one of the stories I told was my impression of the food service when I first took you to Truman State University. And I walked into the cafeteria setting and I thought, oh my gosh, where are you going to get all of those critical nutrients? Because most of the food is packaged, it's processed. Uh, there's a lot of waste. That's not. There is not a lot of fresh food. Uh, the, most of the food comes on a truck. It's institutional. It's industrial. And you set about to make a change in that system. Tell us what you did and how you went about it. Yeah, the food system change was just one of the things that I worked on while I was there. But it was a big part of what I did, along with other students, for a sort of campaign for food justice at, at Truman. So one of the first things we did was we identified farmers in the area that we were thinking we would really want to work with. We made a map of those farmers and their location, and we presented that information to the food system director, and along with others, and talked about how we might start integrating those foods into the menu items and how we could use those foods even seasonally, even with a limited season, even under the stipulations of distribution, which is a huge issue, how you can go from getting all of your food from one distributor who they, they used um, Sodexo and Cisco was their distributor, and how you can go from that kind of a system, which is very narrowly focused, to one that is very broad, but within a local system makes so much more sense. Right, and you improve the economy of that region by keeping local farmers on their land, and you get the benefit as a student of eating fresher, more local food. That is the hope. And even on Truman's land, we have a university farm. So something that we're starting to do now is planting food specifically for Sodexo on the university farm's land and having student workers do that work so that there's not this resistance about how are we going to find the labor, how are we going to get the food to the cafeterias. It's like we offered that we would do all of that because this is something we really wanted to see. That sounds like a wonderful win-win situation. Exactly. Well, what were your barriers? I know that we've, you know, we certainly as a mother and daughter team, we've certainly Mm -hmm. communicated about what some of the barriers were to getting better food. Are you limited by how much food, fresh food you can use and by how many farmers you can uh, purchase from in the local area? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think ideally the food system director there would love to use more local foods, but something we really run up against is the bureaucracy at the regional level. Every region in the United States, the Sodexo system has different rules. So even though in California and in the Northeast, Sodexo might be already serving a large percentage of local foods, because the Midwest region has different rules, it's, that always comes up as a barrier you know, working with the distributor and how are we going to pay the farmers outside of this distribution center that we're used to. And then there's also insurance, isn't there, for the farmers? That's a big deal. uh, how How do farmers work within this system? Well, the farmers that, it's really a challenge because the distributor, the food that comes through the, the Cisco distribution 
is all insured with you know a million dollar plan or something like that. So the farmers, if we wanted to use local farmers, they would have to have that same insurance. Um, one solution to that is cooperative insurance for farmers. People like Organic Valley, who have a farmer cooperative, are very they're much more able to use that cooperation for their benefit when it comes to the insurance issue. But because we don't really have that in our local area in Kirksville, we had to work with farmers who were already getting their food to Hy-Vee. Those were the people who already had insurance, and we were able to use Hy-Vee as sort of a secondary distributor. The problem with that is that the farmers don't get as much funding if you've got a middleman, Hy-Vee, before, or Cisco for that matter, one of the goals is with purchasing from local farmers is that they get more of the profit because we're buying directly from them. But because of this insurance issue, it makes it really difficult. So I'm sure there are other students listening to this radio program out there. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. What, what advice would you give them for getting more local foods on their campuses? I would say the most important thing, and this is something we could have really worked on, too, is increasing the frequency of communication between students and farmers, between farmers and the food system, between students and the food system on, ca- on the campus. Because really, like, for instance, we provided this um, list of farmers and their contact information and what they would provide to the, the food service pretty early on. And I checked back with them a s- semester later after they had told me, yeah, we'll start getting in touch with farmers, we'll, we'll get this going. And here I am thinking, that's great, they're doing it already. You know, and for a semester I was sitting there just, you know, doing my schoolwork. And that's a big challenge, too, is finding time between being a student and trying to be an activist for this. But, you know, a semester later I went back and talked to the food service director, and he was like, oh, you know, I lost track of the the pamphlet you gave me, I didn't really have the information right, I couldn't. You know, all of these different little little problems that happened. And really nothing happened during that semester to progress the issue. So, yeah, keeping in contact and working with the stakeholders positively, not looking at the food service director as an enemy. You have to work with them and, you know, really appreciate what they do because you're going to be working together. What would be in it for the food service director? If if they go with the with the Cisco Sodexo system, it's probably quick and easy, right? Mm-hmm. You just order all of the foods you need mm-hmm. off one ordering form, and now you're asking them to make develop individual relationships with different farmers. So it sounds to me like you're giving the food service director more work to do. Right. So what do we? What is in it for the director to make this change? Well, you know, if students are unquestioning and students don't really want the change to happen, then nothing's in it for them. Right. You know, this is something that they're doing of their own volition, and there's no real benefit. But when students really want it and when students are asking for it, they're going to see positive feedback, and that's what they like. You right. know, maybe they will be appreciated more from the higher-ups because of that. There are lots of food distributors who are starting to do more local food activism, and they're advertising that. One of the things we brought up is that it could even potentially increase the students interested in Truman and coming to Truman as a, a student, because that's something that's important to people. I agree. And I think it's becoming more and more important to the younger generation. They really are an, a more educated, more savvy about the food system. And I agree with you. I think that improving the food system at campuses could be a huge recruitment tool. Mm-hmm. And if there are any campus food service directors or 
uh, college presidents listening, I highly encourage you to change the local food system and use that as a recruitment tool because many students are paying attention. I'm sure you're familiar with the Real Food Challenge. Of course, yeah, we worked with them. Tell, tell me about the Real Food Challenge. Yeah, the Real Food Challenge works really well because one of the things they do is that they network people from all kinds of universities um, that are working on the same sorts of projects together so they can share their stories and they can, if one person from Sodexo that works for Sodexo, for instance at Grinnell, this was Sodexo at Grinnell, which is also in the Midwest region, they have local foods already. So we worked with the people that were working for Sodexo there to get into contact with our Sodexo staff and faculty and, and just really describe to them how well it can work. Because when you're all alone and trying to make change, it really is difficult. I agree with you. And I think that that's the beauty of, of feeling like you're not alone in trying to make these changes. There are college campuses all over the country where these things are happening. And I actually met one of the chefs, I believe, from Grinnell. Mm. And he had this, I guess you could say, an epiphany. He went and studied with a chef up in Chicago and just saw how the whole system worked, and he became committed to the movement. Mm -hmm. And then he had, of course, a, a group of students working behind him. Mm -hmm. And so it all, all the pieces came together. Yeah. I know that uh, a friend of mine at Cornell had mentioned where some of the contracts specifically state, you know, a certain percentage needs to come from local food. So they write that policy in mm -hmm. from the get-go. And I think, too, you know, if... Certainly at state universities, if they want to support state agriculture, a really good way to do that is to have a policy that says we are going to purchase 10, 20 percent of our food from local farmers. Exactly. That was another step in this process, too. Pretty late on, we realized that there's got to be some kind of statement saying this is what we're going to do this is what we're willing to do and you know our goal is to get to this point by whatever year and that's something that a lot of the other universities that I was in contact with had also done so towards the end of my time at Truman uh, we put together the Truman State University Sustainability Initiative which not only covered food issues it covered things like energy building retrofitting transportation in the local area different things we can do with students to really make a difference you know waste impact, all different things. And we recently had a, a meeting talking about these issues to sort of recover that in our memory. And all of the stakeholders got together and we met at a certain place and we talked about what we'd really like to see in the food system, the challenges, the benefits, and we really made a lot of progress. But um, that is definitely what we're headed for. So. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Hannah Hemmelgarn. And yes, indeed, she is my daughter. And she is a recent graduate of Truman State University, where she majored in anthropology and sociology, minor in French and environmental studies. Her senior research project was on women in sustainable food systems. She recently uh, completed a permaculture design certificate, and she worked actively with a team of students to change the food system at Truman. That's an ongoing job, I'm sure. I'd like to segue into some of your research on women in sustainable food systems. Mm -hmm. How did you decide or what made you interested in that topic? Well, I had been interested in rural sociology for a while, and I, I was really fascinated by the idea of environmental justice and environmental ecofeminism, different things like that that I had been introduced to at a student-led class, actually, very early on in my college career. And there was sort of a 
a conflict between what I was learning in environmental justice classes and what I was learning in my anthropology classes, which was that our biology, our physiology impacts the way we behave. And in many other classes, there's this idea that women and men, you know, we're definitely equal and we can do the same things and we can fill the same roles. And that's certainly true. But because of our evolutionary history, we don't. Um, and recognizing the role that women fill in agriculture and in sustainable food systems in food is really important in order to understand where we need to focus our education, where we need to um, change things, and how we need to understand how women play a role in sustainability. So you traveled around the Midwest, specifically around Missouri and Iowa, mm -hmm. and you interviewed 12 women, is that correct? That's right, yeah. And what did they teach you? Wow, they taught me so much. I mean, there was a lot of wisdom shared beyond what we presented in our research. But really what I learned was that women are involved in smaller scale systems and women are more able to be involved in multifunction, multitasking kind of operations, which are more often that small and multitasking, multifunction um, is not only permaculture related, but it's sustainability in action. So the women were involved in these systems partly because of the way they grew up. They often grew up under the care of their mothers doing kitchen garden work. The kind of culture we live in teaches us that farmers are men. So a lot of these women don't even see themselves as farmers. You know, they're producing food, but they're producing food on a small enough scale that they see themselves as homemakers, as peasants, as gardeners. But really, the majority of our domestic food in intake comes from women's work. So that's a really important thing to remember. And recognizing how women work in the food system is very, very important in order to get to a more sustainable future. One of the, I, of course, looked over your research paper and looked at your PowerPoint slide presentation, as any good mother would do. And I was really intrigued by not only the way the women saw themselves, but how their decisions were very solidly based on their love for their children and their family. Mm -hmm. So this rampant use and increasing use of pesticides, as we learned at, at the Community Food Security Coalition meeting in, in Iowa this week, that despite all of this technology, uh, we are using more pesticides today than ever before. We had a chance to see the Big River movie that uh, Kurt Ellis just came out with as a follow-up to King Corn. What happens to the water that is that is used on that acre of corn and how that polluted water affects our health. And so I love the idea that with women in agriculture on these smaller, more sustainable systems, they are always thinking of future generations because I think of our role uh, as mothers, as family nurturers and gatekeepers. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I... I think that we shouldn't downplay the role that men have, too. Men are certainly concerned about the future um, and concerned about their children, if they have children. But because women are more likely breastfeeding and caring for their children as well as doing other things, they have this multitasking way about them that's innate. And women are also, even the women that didn't have children that we interviewed, were very concerned not only not about economic development and productivity so much as about cultural, you know, honoring our culture and 
honoring ourselves, honoring our environment. You know, some of the women I interviewed said, you know, they don't think about the price of things. They think about the the quality of things. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard because, you know, a lot of single mothers have a, you know, it's very hard for them to decide between feeding their child fresh fruits and vegetables, which are often more expensive than highly processed foods, although it depends how you're measuring expense. Right. And the foods that that they can afford. It's right. really difficult and you know, we did notice that in these interviews, we were hearing a lot about how women are not only involved in, but they're more interested in small-scale sustainable systems and CSAs, in gardening, more than commodity farming. That's community-supported agriculture, right. CSAs. Right. You mentioned ecofeminism. I wonder, can you give me a, a definition of that? Sure. It involves a lot of different things. We defined it as the belief and responses to that women in nature are abused, exploited, and undervalued by patriarchal attitudes of domination, and that women are disproportionately affected by environmental degradation. Um, That's an environmental justice issue that is often caused by males. And the positive things involved with this are cooperative, egalitarian, and biocentric values. So women have, you know, almost a spiritual connection. Not almost, really. Women have a spiritual connection with the environment just because of the nature of our bodies. Hannah, I knew this would be a wonderful, enlightening interview for me, especially. We have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that I failed to ask you that you'd like to like our listeners to know? Wow. I mean, there's so much I'd really like. You know, we just got back from this Food Sovereignty Community, Food Security Coalition conference, and I learned so much there, and I really feel like we have to promote food sovereignty, not just food security, and that there's a difference between those two things. You know, food security might involve growing more food, which is, you know, something Monsanto, I'm sure, would be proud to say that they support, but not just productivity, but valuing the culture, valuing what we're doing to our land, because we are the land. You know, when we eat food that comes from our backyards, we are eating the nutrients from the soil. We are eating our land, and we are home. And um, I think it's so important to remember that and to really value those those things. So. Well, I wish you and all of your young colleagues, I should say, in this area a lot of luck in making the world a better place. I know you Thanks. are well on your way. Thank you, Hannah, for being with us. And I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And if you'd like to learn more about food sovereignty, I recommend that everyone check out the Community Food Security Coalition website. Thank you.